Hi, folks. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I'm here with my bestie and co-host, Dr. Shiloh. Say hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. This is a nice, relaxing weekend as we are moving towards Halloween, which is going to be sort of thematic with our show today. We had a great time, though, last week. Like, I have to say, this is two weeks in a row that I have been on a full work day going and doing something that was really late at night like uh-huh. well, although Saturday w- did we do horror nights on a Saturday yeah yeah we did a Saturday yeah. yeah but we were up late yes yes we had a blast it was so much fun we had a nice little meetup at City Walk and had a bunch of people show up and it was just nice it was perfect we got this little area just for us and hung out and chatted and we were like oh my god it's so hot you know the sun was like beating that evening sun beating in on us but it was perfect for going into the park it was and having a good you know half a dozen people join us for that so that was so fun yeah and the fast pass thing to your credit was the way to go we were just literally walking through all the attractions instead of instead of sitting for you know standing for three hours yeah we got to do everything it was great. And we thought we almost lost one of our Patreon members on a ride. <laughs> oh my God. That was that. Thank you. I buried the lead. That's actually was the wackiest. You guys, listeners, we got to meet one of our um, subscribers who is a blast and introduced herself to us and is another fellow mental health clinician. She's in, in grad school. And like, it was like we had been meeting somebody we had known for 10 years. Seriously. Completely. Yeah. And we went through Harry Potter world into Hogwarts into the only ride that was open, which was the Hogwarts ride. What is that called? It's not. Uh, I don't know. It's just the main Harry Potter. Yeah. It's not (laughs) the flight of the hypocrite. It's not the roller coaster. It's a whole, it's actually like a combination of a motion cap ride like it's oh let me put it in Disney terms. It's a combination of Indiana Jones, Soren, yeah, and a couple of other things that had all these elements, right? And so you go and you sit in, in a magic flying cabinet, and you're gonna follow Harry around all his adventures on his broom. And our friend, I she, she I saved a seat for her in our cabinet, and then I think she got directed to the next set over. So I leaned forward after I was locked into the ride and I was like, Hey, you should have come down here. Okay. Well, we'll see you afterwards. So we, then we do the whole ride and we land and she's gone. Yeah. Because it was us, you, me and my sister in one. And then she was in the next one. And then our other two friends, Adrian and James were in the third cabinet. Right. So we get off and then Adrian and James are there and she's nowhere. Like and she never gets off the ride. It was, Completely paranormal. <laughs> I know. And Adrian was like, where is she? And we, I mean, it was really, we were like, okay, no, she has to be here somewhere. That's not possible for this ride. To <laughs> we have lost just a Patreon her. member. <laughs> we're going to be sued. We're, it, it was so weird. You were even going up to like a staff member and you're like, hey, our friend is gone. <laughs> Well, I mean, to their credit, they didn't look at us like we were completely crazy. But to uh, a point that they could have made, what actually happened was her 
unit had been taken off on a sidetrack in order to help someone who was disabled right. get on and off. So it delayed her. We didn't realize you could like separate whole cars would be yeah. redeployed at different points. So about 12 minutes later, she wanders out. We were like, oh, my God, we've got her coat, her wallet. This is good. Like, this is going to be a <laughs> podcast episode. Totally. Oh, I'm glad it worked out. Uh, it yeah, it was fun. And you know what? I have totally missed. October 4th was our fourth podcast birthday. I didn't even think about it. I didn't post on social media. Wow. Nothing. So we are over four years old now. Happy anniversary. This is crazy. Yes, I know. I know. Who would have thunk? And we got plenty of material for another four years, at least. Serious, it's not going to stop. There's so much ends. material. It never ends. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we have a fun Halloween themed spooky episode for you guys today. Something a, a little lighter in a sense. I will say there's going to be one trigger warning for one case I'm going to cover. Right. That does involve sexual assault against women and children. But I'm going to keep the details to a minimum. But for this Halloween episode, we're going to explore crimes with a supernatural theme. Absolutely. We're going to have a little hint of horror. A tingle of terror. A dram of dread. Which a ghost and a demonic stalker. But mostly a cornucopia of con artists that victimize both the vulnerable and the naive, as well as some greedy folks that really should know better. So our psych issues are going to be sort of circling around to a previous episode we did on confidence men or con men. And also... Some of the things that we talked about with Tammy and Bryce, there is some things here that we studied. We wanted to actually present what evidence that has been researched, even infinitesimally small as it is. We wanted to talk about the research that is out there today that supports the existence of some psi phenomenon. We'll we'll explain a little bit about Psy, that. Psi, yes, yes. So along with that, we're going to have a few examples of things that are truly mysterious and unexplained. And I guess we both can kind of put in our two cents of what we think about these things. You guys all know I'm the skeptic in the group, but it'll be fun. Let's explore. Yeah. I mean, I think we've both evolved, like both of us having like very different views at the beginning. We, bo- I've become more of a skeptic than I was probably 30 years ago. And you've maybe been uh, become a little bit more open to it. So I have, I have, especially since I have a little person in my home that is feeling like she's sensitive to something. So right. I'm embracing it. Yeah, why not? So look, some things to know as a basis. I I do think that there is a huge overlap in true crime and horror or the paranormal. There are cases in the true crime world that either inadvertently have been named as paranormal when there's just a lack of understanding or in some communities, we use almost anything that we can to marginalize people they will do that as well with religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs. We don't, we're not able to touch on all of those, but there are great paranormal true crime podcasts out there. We're going to be talking about the psych issues underneath that regarding people believing these things, which may or may not have evidence, particularly when there's no evidence and people believe it, as well as people becoming believers because they're the victim of scams or victims of crimes. So just some basic terms 
to know from our total academic background, if we were going to like explain some things academically, the term parapsychology is used to explore fringe ideas of human behavior and perception. It is really, really maligned within the academic community to the point where legitimate and respected academics are not allowed. I mean, it's, well, it's not like they're not allowed. They can publish. There are legit journals that will publish studies. But every researcher, every psychologist who does this is taking a huge chance with their reputation because it is like alarms go off all over the community about whether or not they're actually doing something that's considered legitimate. So there is an interest in the paranormal as recent scientific research has expanded knowledge of spookiness that occurs on a molecular level that's not fully understood. So we actually have a branch of science that's developed in the last few decades that is looking at things that science would never have really conceived of prior to that. Right. Well, and as a skeptic, I mean, I can completely get behind the fact that we don't know everything about everything. Perhaps we just don't have the technology or the science to explain right. something yet. You know, something is paranormal. I am not poo-pooing any of that at all. I get it. We just, we don't know everything. But, you know, there's two things here, especially with what you were just talking about. One, people, whether parapsychologists or not, have been searching for these answers of kind of the unexplained and the afterlife and like all of those things for a very long time. I feel like we've gotten more tools to kind of play around with. And this is as a total novice. So... Please, throughout this entire episode, everybody know that like this is not my wheelhouse. But I feel like there's, you know, fun tools and technology that people are using, but I don't really feel like there's any more answers per se. Right. I think it's led to more questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now that you're, you know, I'm learning that they really don't let legit academics work in, in a sense, to me, like I think confirmation bias. Okay. So... Are you trying to just shield your eyes to whatever is verifying data against the parapsychology world? I don't know. But I also know the brain is a very powerful thing. So whether it's making stories and sense out of things that we just don't know about yet, I don't know. I actually just went to a training a couple of weeks ago where there was a professor from Harvard talking about best and latest data on placebo effect. And it is so, I mean, I know it's a thing. I've studied it. But to the degree that our brains trick ourselves is insane. I mean... I'm so glad you're bringing that up. uh, So crazy. Exactly. One of the most fascinating things to me about placebo effect is it works even when you know it's placebo effect. Oh, yeah. And people will say... I know I was getting the placebo, but can I have more of those pills? Because it's working. Right. And there was a study that was shown that was delivered to us in this presentation by this researcher where this doctor who performs back surgeries, basically what he does is he's the one that puts in like, they call it cement, but it's the cement that they kind of inject into the crevices, into the bones, into the back. And he had the group where he put the cement in the back. And then he had another group that he brought in, laid on the table. They did the local anesthesia. They couldn't see. He opened the jar of cement because it actually has a a distinct smell. So he recreated everything up into the injection where he would press on them and be like, okay, you're getting the injection now. There was a woman with a broken back who after that 
didn't get anything. She was in the placebo group and she's out playing golf like eight days later. My back feels amazing. I was like, what? She has a broken back. This is crazy. There was a similar study that was done before that about a doctor doing that with knee surgeries. And it was the exact same response. It was all these people with meniscus tears and other things. And I, myself, that's one of the only surgeries I've ever had is a meniscus shave because yeah. I mean, the and the pain was brutal. Oh. So the idea that something, I mean, I think in mine that he goes, like when it was over, he said, yeah, there was just some stuff floating around. I really didn't have to do anything, but you know, it. wash it out, you know, yeah. and, and wear it down a little bit. But the idea that our bodies have this like homeostasis balance that maybe mm -hmm. we can help by supporting it. It's very important. I think it adds a certain element to helping science understand the the power of what our brains can do. Right. You know, we keep breaking, we keep breaking Olympic records every year. You know, oh no, it's not possible for this person to, it's not possible for a human to do this, to jump this high, to run this fast. And yet we break these records every mm -hmm. single year. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I mean, we're, look, we're not physicists. We can't opine on quantum entanglements, which I think is absolutely bizarrely fascinating that the idea the two subatomic particles can communicate with each other over vast distances. That's mind blowing beyond Star Trek type of stuff. But there are legitimate studies that have happened in universities and government agencies over the past 100 years each with varying and minimal amounts of actual data produced. But even when there's no data produced, that in itself is data and very important, which is why we should like really try and get rid of this confirmation bias and just make sure that we're being rigorous in the techniques in which we conduct experimentation and the way we analyze that data. Absolutely. So there's a couple of, you know, areas of field. Most people, I mean, this, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm sure telepathy, it's the transmission of information from person to person, non-vocally over near and far distances. One of the theories is that there is just a, a morphic field, an energetic field that is undetectable to humans, that we are able to transmit information through that field somehow. And there's yep. been some of our most successful studies have been in strictly in telepathy. And one of the most famous ones was done at Duke University starting in the 60s and 70s using the Rhine cards. If you've ever seen them, it's five cards with very distinct symbols on them. And there's a lot of data that came back from these double blind studies. Yes. There's also some great books out there and research about human and animal nonverbal communication, which is completely completely fascinating. There's a wonderful book entitled Dogs Who Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. Oh, I think that's yeah. the name of it. So that's, you mean the communication between the human and the animal? Right. Yeah. There was a scientist and his wife conducted a, a double blind study and his dog always knew when his intention to come home was shifting. So it wasn't about like, nope, my owner is home every day at 545 and has a treat for me. It was when he made the intention to come home from a set of errands or from work, the dog would get up and go and sit at the front door. That's oh, boy. so interesting to me. Absolutely. Another reason why we don't deserve dogs. Oh, they're so good. Dogs are wonderful. Is your husband like, is he in tune to when you're getting ready to come home and he goes to the door and waits for you? <laughs> he does this thing like he'll do that thing. I mean, we live in a big urban area, but when I'm coming home after private practice, after my regular work day and then my days of my hours of private practice, it 
can be there can be an hour variance and he'll always be waiting at the front door because like he'll say oh i can hear the car and like how are you hearing the car it's around the corner where i park that's so, so sweet yeah it's very Aww. sweet and there's also remote viewing which yeah. if you guys think of the film men who stare at goats yes <laughs> the practice of seeking impressions about a distant or unseen target purportedly sensing it with the mind. Right. Remote viewing experiments have historically been criticized for a lack of what you were talking about, proper controls, repeatability, validity. And there is no scientific evidence that remote viewing exists. It's generally regarded as pseudoscience. However, remote viewing was extensively studied by the U.S. government as well as the Russian government for the purpose of gaining military intelligence, as well as attempts to psychically influence events. And the U.S. program was called Project Stargate. It was a $20 million research program began around 1975, and that was in an attempt to determine any potential military application of essentially psychic phenomena. So I I feel like at times our government has been kind of desperate to try anything <laughs> to get ahead. <laughs> and certainly they weren't afraid to, uh, you know, reach into these realms. But the program was terminated in 1995 after it failed to produce any actionable intelligence information. So it went on 20 years. That's a long time to put into research and study and oh, money. Yeah. $20 million. I mean, I guess it's in the military budget. So why not? However, there are indications that several experiments were carried on after this initial phase, quote unquote, failed. So, I mean, it, it makes me think like, would they keep it going for 20 years if it was a total failure? I wonder, we don't know everything. I'm sure there's stuff that still remains classified. Yeah. I mean, just recently, I mean, within the last decade, Time Magazine wrote a, that three full-time psychics were still working on a $500,000 a year budget at Fort Meade, Maryland. And they were saying that it was going to be soon closed. There, there was a third party investigation and statistical review that concluded that there was no usable intelligence or data that was produced in the program. And David Goslin of the American Institute for Research said there's no documented evidence it had any value to the intelligence community. So look, oh, and I'm falling prey to it too. I go, but wait, there's part of me that says, yes, but what are you not telling me? Right. So is that delusional on my part? I mean, like here is a government agency telling me, yes, we've been researching this. We found nothing, absolutely nothing at all. That immediately gets me going. <laughs> red flag. Well, red flag, right? And so I think sometimes, even though it's a big and very strong term of delusion, it's a desire to believe. You know, delusion can be driven by our own well-known typical factors that involve conspiracy theories. Yeah. Clearly, we've talked about that extensively in our episodes. You know, so I have to look at myself, well, wait, what drives me to want to push back against a statement like this that's been published? Do I want to be part of a special community that knows the truth? Like, uh -huh. like uh, Mulder in The X-Files with the poster saying, I want to believe. Right. Which, of course, they also had, a, a, I think, a three-episode arc about remote viewing, about the last remnants of the remote viewers Yeah, that were all clones of each other. It was very fascinating. Yeah, I don't. I just get stuck on, you know, a 20-year program and now beyond in some fashion. I can't think of a university that would have 
zero data come out and continue the research for 20 years. Yeah, that's particularly odd. I would have now the skeptic in me would also say, but it's also a government agency. And as much as I know from working in threat assessment and risk management or a risk assessment as well, I, I do understand that government agencies address things that will probably never be open to the public until way beyond you or I are alive. Like sure. that's just the way things work. And there's a reason you can't be transparent, no matter people want to say, no, there should be complete transparency, but it doesn't work that way because some things you do have to keep hidden in order to manage nascent terrorism that exists in the world. Right. But that being said, there's been tons of U.S. military experiments that were, I mean, one of them, what was the one? I didn't do research on it for this, but as you were talking, it made me think about it. There was the talk of developing a gay bomb during one of the wars where they would bomb the enemy with like this super dose of pheromones and testosterone, making all the soldiers just so horny that they would just like lay down on what? the field and turn into an orgy. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> yeah, just Google the gay bomb. It's pretty, pretty whack, wacky, I would say. Wasn't that your nickname in college? Gay bomb. Yeah, one of them. <laughs> the gay bomb. <laughs> the gay bomb. <laughs> Another phenomenon is NDEs, not NDAs. I'm not talking about non-disclosure agreements. <laughs> right. Near-death experiences. Right. And this is pretty well known and an area that is continuously studied. It basically comes down to... The fact that some people believe that there's a common pattern of events that many people experience when they are experiencing an intense threat that is going to cause them to be seriously ill or come close to death, or they actually suffer some sort of injury or ex experience that they are on the brink of death if if you want to put it that way you know not just a traumatic experience where you're you know you could have died you were in this car accident but you're in a car accident you're in a coma something like that or you, the people who actually have died quote unquote right given and the terms of what death is which is supposed lack of brain activity and all these other organs kind of like go okay we're now dead which we can bring people back from in certain cases if, sure. they're, if they're not injured like with the application of epinephrine to the heart and maybe some other things mm -hmm. people can come back and there's a commonality of those experiences right so and ndes vary from one person to another of course they're going to have their own experience and they often include similar features such as feeling very comfortable and free of pain in that positive light. But there's also similarities as a more terrifying experience yeah. that people talk about in, in a negative way. And there's many different explanations for NDEs. They vary from scientific, you know, brain function and, and what is our body doing at that time to religious. The neuroscience community, research community hypothesizes that an NDE is a subjective phenomenon resulting from, quote, disturbed bodily multisensory. So it's it's a very interesting area there. You know, you and I have talked before about even hallucinations and experiences that people have before they pass and the studies that have been done there, the, the interviews and case studies that have been done with hospice nurses and what right. they observe that are similar with their patients. And there's a, a Netflix docu-series right now that you can watch. It's called Surviving Death that yeah. covers a lot of this. 
that I really enjoyed that, especially there are two episodes in the middle that are focusing on a group in Europe that are mediums that channel. And it's that part got a little bit wonky because there was not really any verifiable data coming from that. Whereas the other episodes focused on, you know, one kid who's now in his 20s. And it talked about the relationship he has with this family that he had claimed he was related to. He had, as a child, been able to come up with all these facts and names, not so much dates, but know the cities. And the I mean, it's a phenomenal experience. Like, how did he know all this from stuff? From a past what? life, you mean? From a past life, yeah. right. So that was fascinating. And there was no like monetary gain involved in it at all. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, what would be the reasoning for that? Although there's a great Nicole Kidman movie about that same phenomenon, but the kid is like super disturbed and figures out a way to right. con her that it's really, really well done. Do you remember the name of that one? I don't. I'll look it up. Okay. But what's great about NDEs or near death experiences is that there are legitimate research bodies that are studying this. The University of Virginia has a division of perceptual studies and it's part of the School of Medicine. It is fascinating. They've got a website, tons of interesting data and studies going on there. It was founded in 1967 by Dr. Ian Stevenson. And originally it was known as the Division of Personality Studies. The stated mission is the scientific empirical investigation of phenomena that suggest currently accepted scientific assumptions and theories about the nature of mind or consciousness and its relation to matter may be incomplete. I love that mission statement. Me too. I really like it. It's like I I can sign on to that. Exactly. We're just going to look at it, you know, so the study of ESP, poltergeists, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, And all of these people or allegations that come forward made by those that claim experience of past lives. Harvard has a version of this. University of Arizona has one. University of Edinburgh. I mean, it's they're not really advertised, but they are out there. Yeah. I mean, those aren't some wacko community college, right? I mean, (laughs) those are some big universities. There's also other previous programs that are no longer around from Stanford University, they had their Stanford Research Institute. It's called, it's now SRI International. And it carried out research on the various phenomenon characterized by the term parapsychology from 1972 to 1991. And their early studies really focused on remote viewing and psychokinesis. And in 1991, the research program then sort of formed into our married up with or combined with what the Stargate project was. So those were affiliated with each other at some point. You already mentioned Duke University. They had their parapsychology lab that ran for 35 years, starting in 1930. And they looked at ESP, telepathy, psychokinesis, precognition, and clairvoyance. And you mentioned the card test there it was the famous Zenner card test. If you guys remember the very beginning of the first Ghostbusters movie, right? Where Dr. Peter Venkman, you know, is telling the hot college student that she's doing great and <laughs> getting them all right, even though right. she's not. <laughs> and then UCLA had a parapsychology lab. It was a lab, not a department. I think and that was part of the their psychiatric inpatient that was in the neuropsychiatric institute. It became that's what it that's where it was housed oh okay whether or not it was fully transparent about what they were doing there 
to people, but that ran from 1967 into 1978. And the lab director was Dr. Thelma Mosh, who was a clinical psychologist by training. And she began conducting studies of ESP, hypnosis, healing, alternative medicine, and then eventually the investigation of hauntings and poltergeists. I think it's fascinating that all of this desire for research and desire for information is being born out of something that may have been a bit of a hoax. Like, I think we've talked about briefly on the show before about the Fox sisters at the turn of the century. Who are these two kids that basically kind of convinced their family and the community that they could communicate with a ghost in their house. And the way they had done it is they right. learned to click their um, foot bones, their foot knuckles. They could make these noises. And in the same sense, like when we talk about why did America put so much money into this research? Well, because it was for military applications and they got word whether accurate or not, that the Russians were way on top of this, that there were Russian spies that were trained as clairvoyants and psychics that were placed around the White House to influence key senators and political figures' thought processes. And at the time, I remember, I mean, I wasn't alive at that time, but I remember back in the day, there was footage that supposedly had been released or or stolen out of Russia, which means it was probably leaked, Mm -hmm. where there was a very famous psychokinetic or telekinetic woman who could move things without touching them. And it's like this grainy black and white footage where a sort of matronly woman is sitting at this table and she's pushing with her hand in the air and making a, a pencil move across the table. So that, I mean, as a kid, that really fascinated me. And was as it an, grainy like the uh, alien autopsy video? Absolutely was. It absolutely was. But this was a long time before anybody would think about those sort of... Sure. That, oh, why would someone fake something like this? Now we immediately like, wait, is that real? Especially, you know, AI and CGI happening. I mean, there's so many things can be fake. But look what it did. Like that and the, the spiritualist movement that put into motion like a whole area of research for things that we do understand as psychological concepts like intuition. We used to think that intuition was this otherworldly thing. There may be some element that we have yet to understand, but we have also come to understand that the glorious brain and the way it works will take information that you don't even realize you have in your brain and use it to construct all sorts of synthesized information that can keep you safe. Right. It can keep you away from bad people. It can keep you away from bad situations. So I I just love how something can start as complete bullshit and it can end up like, what is the the Kitty Genovese story? We talked about that with a bystander. What's that? The bystander effect. Bystander effect. We've now found out that while we have data now that the bystander effect is a real thing, it didn't actually happen in that first event. No, that supposedly no. it came from. There was like it. In fact, nothing like the first decade of reports about that crime were completely incorrect. Right. People did not stand around and do nothing and just watch her get murdered. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> but, one of the things. Yes. In, it, it turned into a, a body of research where we that does exist. It just didn't exist out of that situation. So weird. right. one of the things that I find interesting as well is that while this data, people are more open now to the idea that there may be things out there that we don't understand. There's also the idea that is really big in 
our world as psychologists is that psychologists are finally tightening up their research methods and holding people accountable. And one of that reasons we talked about that before about people who falsify data. There was mm-hmm. a huge, huge breach of ethics and morals by a very well-known researcher about 15 years ago. And now everything that he did, we have to question because he was so hell-bent on being a successful researcher. Right. Yeah. Just ethics. I mean, just morals. I mean, to, to falsify scientific data that could have a big impact is just disgusting. But I did find that there is a parapsychological association. It's an international organization that by all accounts, functions just like any other professional field association. It has bylaws, memberships, awards, conferences, grants, you name it. And they even say as a part of their mission statement or bylaws that they invite skepticism as an essential part of the scientific method from which they are trying to function. And I love that. You know, they say it's even better if if skeptics are coming to them or looking at their data with a, a skeptical eye. So I'm all for that. I think if the more tightened up it is, the more it reflects other fields of study that have taken decades and, you know, many, many years, if not hundreds of years to come into their own. Why not this as well? Yeah, there's a very important character in all this who recently passed away just within the last few years. James Randi, he was a former stage mentalist and magician for people who don't know what a mentalist is. It's a person who puts on a show as if they have psychic powers and they are really, really good at cold reading, at using technology to gather information about people, to read their targets, body language and facial expressions in order to incorporate that. And Randy was a still a bit of a showman himself. He became a hardcore skeptic and understandably so because there were have been so many cons over the years of innocent victims, like thousands of dollars, uh, even up to millions of dollars of people being victimized by those that said that they had psychic abilities or mediumship abilities. And he even had a million dollar challenge where he would challenge people to prove that they had these abilities. And he did something, he did something like really fascinating. He sent a couple of people into a psychic research institute and they were trained stage mentalists and both of them completely fooled everybody in the research, oh, wow. which I mean, that I think is very valuable. However, I also know that he was very picky uh-huh. about who he would allow to challenge him on that million dollar challenge. And there were some potentially legitimate challenges that he would not take up. That's pretty well known. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love Every movie or TV show that's ever come out about a mentalist is just, especially like the turn of the century. That Victorian era. Yes. Those are so great. So great. I thought I would transition into talking about sort of crime examples that have a paranormal twist to them. And you would not believe how many people try to blame their crimes on ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if the, if you can say the ghost did it and not me, it's been done in just about every kind of crime you can think of, whether it's just kind of a far-fetched, I'm going to throw blame on a ghost just because I have no one else to blame it on right now. Or it could be some sort of psychotic 
disorder manifestation of somebody truly believing it. I'm I'm sure um, there's been case after case of that as well. But I, I swear, like everything from I read one about a drunk teenager in the UK who <laughs> was was arrested by the cops and they charged him with disorderly conduct. But also, I guess there's some law where he was yelling profanities at the officers. And basically he was like, that wasn't me. That was the disembodied voice of the ghost pirate that I could see. <laughs> so it wasn't me that you were hearing calling you whatever they call each other in, in the UK. <laughs> but then there was a probably very mentally ill uh, mother in North Carolina in 2011 that murdered her children. And she was really only able to mutter that the ghost did it yeah. instead of her. So very wide variety in which people blame their crimes on ghosts, everything, including domestic violence and assaults. But I think the strangest that I came across is the ghost rapes of Bolivia. I'm so glad you remembered the story. I read about this years ago. I think Jezebel was the the website yes. that this is a bug fuck crazy story. It totally is. Jezebel covered this. So this occurred between 2005 and 2009. And over those four years, over 130 women and girls in a Mennonite community in Bolivia reported being sexually assaulted in their sleep by an unknown entity. So just real quick, if you aren't familiar, the Mennonite church is an Anabaptist Christian denomination with roots in the radical reformation of the 16th century of 16th century Europe, very similar to the Amish. And they stem from the same reformation less strict doctrines in the Amish. Often they integrate into society a little bit more. And the church is, it, it's been losing members in the United States and Europe, but it is really growing rapidly in other parts of the world, including in the Southern hemisphere. So this is a, a community that was down in, in Bolivia and pretty self-contained community. You know, all of their very modest homes were all together, even though they integrate and go out to the community and use a little bit more technology than the Amish traditionally do. So the victims in this case, they would wake up with raging headaches. Sometimes there were bits of rope in their hair or even around their wrists. They would complain of pain in their genital areas, complete memory loss, and not just that they felt they'd been sexually assaulted by some unknown entity, but there was also blood and semen stains on their sheets. So, you know, it has you questioning what, what's going on here because there is DNA being left by these ghosts. One victim talked about going to bed clothes only to wake up naked and covered by dirty fingerprints all over her body. And then another woman said that she claims kind of remembering or more of a dream of someone or something forcing itself onto her and she was out in a field. And then she wakes up the next morning in her bed with grass in her hair. And yet another woman talked about... She woke up and multiple times she would wake up with rope tied around her wrists, tightly around her wrists and her ankles. And this particular woman, she had two adolescent daughters that started reporting pain in their genital areas as if they had been sexually assaulted. So the family made sure all entrances to their home were locked or blocked during the night. The mother talked about how she would force herself to try and stay awake all night to try and protect her family. And there was even a local Bolivian worker who would stand guard 
over the home. And you can imagine all of the shame that surrounded this, just like with any sexual assault, but especially in this deeply religious community to where at first the the individual women and girls weren't even reporting it. And then they start talking to each other and start realizing it's happening to more than one of them. The victimology in this case was all over the place. You had victims ranging in age from three to 65. You had married, single, residents of the community, visitors that were coming in, all of them victimized. And though it's not really discussed, but part of the aftermath that we'll find out is that some of the men and boys were raped as well. But that that has been pretty under the radar and definitely not talked about. So as I was saying before, you know, there's this this shame and this surreal nature of these attacks happening that really kept the women from speaking up about it. And the first woman who finally came forward to her community about it, what did they say? They said she was trying to cover up an affair. So basically you're having sex outside your marriage and now you're trying to blame it on some ghost. Well, they then started coming forward in droves And then the men and other members of the community were saying, oh, it's just wild female imagination. (laughs) So they're not being believed. And after so many families started reporting it, the, the men were saying that their families were being victimized. They had no explanation for this because they, they weren't seeing any perpetrators. And as a community, they basically decided that this was a plague from God. Mm -hmm. They took a very religious view of it. However, they then ended up settling on a theory, however one does that, that it was a ghost demon. There was just, they couldn't think of any other explanation for why this was happening en masse the way that it was. Well, so it, go I was just going to say, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I can understand where you would go to a conclusion like that. You're a religious community that has some very fundamentalist beliefs. The Mennonites, like the Amish community, really don't use a lot of technology And they were making efforts. They weren't taking this lying down. They were trying to stay awake. They were trying to set up protocols. And suddenly, magically, entire households are passing out and not being able to wake up. I mean, that is terrifying. Yeah. How do you explain that? I mean, and also, like, can you imagine being a victim, a child victim at that? And your community is telling you that there's a demon doing this to you. And it's just terrifying beyond almost beyond what a regular sexual assault would be like because you're so incredibly vulnerable and you feel like your family can't protect you. But of course, it was not a ghost or a demon committing the rapes. It ended up being a group of nine men from within the community. They were aged 19 to 43. And what they did is they used a spray, a veterinary concoction that was used to anesthetize cows to essentially roofie the entire household. So they would spray it in the windows at night and crawl in. And after the family was all passed out, they would commit these horrible, horrible sexual assaults. And they admitted to doing it sometimes in groups sometimes alone. But this all came to light when two of them actually were finally caught trying to enter a neighbor's home in 2009. And those two ended up squealing on their cohorts. 
And so the nine of them were rounded up. They were turned over to the Bolivian authorities. And in 2011, they each received a 25-year prison sentence for their crime. So this went over four years. They were attacking these women. I mean, awful, awful. The victims, again, because of some religious reasons and also I'm sure, you know, shame. The victims were denied professional counseling as it was reported by the men in the community, whether this was, you know, part of religious views or again, shame just coming into play. A journalist had from Vice actually had traveled down there who had originally reported on this and then kind of went back in the aftermath to see how the community was doing and essentially said that there was just substantial psychological trauma remaining within the community and perhaps kind of alluding to more widespread sexual abuse matters. I don't want to get into that, but it it was very, very problematic for a number of reasons. So I think... You know, psychologically here, obviously, there's some major predatory behavior here. I think it's really interesting. There's a group dynamic to it with more than one and essentially a group of men committing these crimes over a long period of time. So, you know, there's there's a very extreme degree to which this is happening, tying people up, young children being victimized all the way to the age of three So whenever young children are involved, for me, it's one of two things. Pedophilia is at play, whether it's they're exclusively attracted to prepubescent children or non-exclusively, or some serious antisocial personality disorder bordering on psychopathy in which what I kind of term the equal opportunity offender. They don't care who they're offending against. It could be adult, man, woman, child they're just going to get their needs met with whomever is available. I can't help but think also that there is a huge cultural piece to this as well. Uh, The religious culture that is pretty much really relegating men and women to very concrete heteronormative ideas. And there's a hierarchy and there's the idea of machismo that exists in um, Southern cultures in that way. I mean, that in itself right there is going to be very difficult to push against in order to provide people with treatment that they need. And then also just the sequelae of sexual trauma. You know, that's not going to, that's not just done. It's not over. The people that have witnessed this and experienced this are going to pass it on to their children when it's not treated. When you, when they e- exhibit behaviors of trauma responses and their children and their children's children witness this. It just carries on generation after generation. It's very sad that they're not allowing treatment to come in. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place. And it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Okay. In that very abrupt but short commercial break, I got called away to a SWAT call out. That was crazy. (laughs) I'm like, you're talking, wrapping up that section. I'm like waving at you. I got to go. I got to get out of here. Look at me. Look at me. But we're back. And I'm back because it resolved itself. 
while I was on the way. Rather shortly, too. You got out of there in no time. That's great. Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. So what's our next transition, Scott? Well, you had me crawl out of the closet and start dinner. So now I'm like recuperating. I thought, I mean, I really didn't think you were going to make it back, which is so glad, so glad you did. I know you were going to give us some cultural examples from around the world. Yeah. I mean, look, if we want to look at this stuff historically, one of the big go-to sort of the grandmama of this is the Salem witch trials. They're part of our history, but really they're only the most well-known of these historical occurrences for like citizens of the U.S., this has been going on. The look, the persecution of marginalized groups for the supposed practice of magic has been around for thousands of years. It was done in the Middle Ages brutally, during the Inquisition brutally, and there are examples all over Europe that we we don't really have such of a history for here in the U.S. that were actually much worse than what we did in Salem. I mean, not not minimizing what was done to those poor people, those poor men and women, but really sure. brutally. So. Look, around the world, there's been a shifting in the view of major religions, as there's always a shift. There's always, you know, religions that tend to rise and fall, a lot of it sometimes being in conjunction with political movements that are happening around the world. One of the things that we're seeing is a lot of people are identifying as spiritual, but they're moving away from some of the more dogmatic religions. And we're also seeing a real resurgence of pagan practices and beliefs in many parts of the world over the past 50 years. But, you know, that doesn't mean it's all Wingardia Leviosa. <laughs> and what is that? <laughs> Wingardia Leviosa. Is that circling back to Harry Potter? That's circling back to Harry Potter. The current belief in witchcraft lives on all over the world. And unfortunately, many current societies hunt alleged witches and horrifically murder them. And family and friends are not spared by this. And wow. sometimes it's family and friends that are perpetrating this. In Papua New Guinea, citizens have been tortured and killed after being accused of witchcraft. Papua New Guinea officially acknowledges magic under its 1976 Sorcery Act. So let that sink in. 1976 Whoa. Sorcery Act. At least the Sorcery Act only condemns practitioners to two years in jail. But people who have acted outside the law have burned these people alive thinking that they were responsible for crimes that may have happened in the community or illness of children or illness of livestock or even just bad luck. So moving on to Ethiopia, if a child is declared to be mingi, meaning cursed, its life will be sacrificed to stop the cursed child from bringing all sorts of horrific evil into the village. So meaning name calling has a much, much more dire consequence there. So the idea that children turning in on each other and accusing another child of being mingi has really significant and life-threatening consequences. A child might be starved to death or tossed into a crocodile-infested river. Oh, my and gosh. All the, it's awful. And even though the government and various aid groups around the country are really trying to stop the practice and sort of turn that narrative around and educate people, it's really ingrained into the cultural life of many rural villages. And they believe that if they don't get rid of the mingi, the rain could stop falling. They could lose their crops. They could lose their cattle, which in itself is a survival thing for that part of the world. Hysteria can also be really a motivator and an instigator for a lot of these uh, types of instances. And in rural parts of India, women like children in Ethiopia can be accused by neighbors or other villagers 
that claim that they are directed by the gods to take vengeance against those women. So let me clarify there. So the people that are accusing women of being sorcerers, sorceresses, witches, evil demons, they can be accused by people who say, hey, the voice of the gods are telling me that this person is bad and we have to take vengeance against them. And as in most of these claims, there's just little evidence and swift action resulting in, in horrible deaths. Now, another version of it is that like the 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 version of Christianity that has been exported to different parts of the world has turned into something that is really quite violent. And in Nigeria, Christian leaders may accuse children of witchcraft for a lot of different calamities or inconveniences. And because of the prominence in their community, these religious leaders really assert that they have the right to direct and instigate and carry out, quote unquote, divine retribution on these alleged witches. So this retribution could include torture, drowning, stabbing, being burned alive. And because of the strong influence of animism or the belief that life inhabits both the living and non-living objects, any animal can be considered to be a witch. In recent years, a, a crazed mob in South Africa chased, captured, and killed a set of flame, a monkey, for the practice of witchcraft. Oh, my goodness. So this is not something that's relegated to the past or to, you know, that's something not so far removed. I mean, we can see that in ourselves, in our own communities, when we marginalize people. And once again, it goes back to many of the elements we've talked about in previous episodes about the psychological drives involved in people who are involved in cults. Mm -hmm. And what is it that pulls them into that belief system? And it's the idea that they are special. They have access to certain knowledge. There's a great portrayal of this in a fictional miniseries called Midnight Mass on Netflix. I highly, highly recommend everybody to watch it. It's so good. I have not watched yet. It, you're going to love it. It's like a psychological horror movie. I don't want to give anything away, but it's by the guy who wrote The Haunting of Hill House, the remake oh, of Haunting of Hill House. So it's really good. I mean, I always think about if anybody, this is again, completely dating myself, but <laughs> I remember there was an old episode of Bewitched where she time travels to the past and she's on trial for witchcraft. And at one point when she remembers who she is so that she can use her powers, she basically just sort of looks at her shackles and they fall off. And she's telling the guys like, Really? You're burning people that you think have power, but this is what power is. I mean, I, I'm, I'm yeah. paraphrasing. I'm not doing the. I mean, it was all done more, a lot more lightheartedly. Like, why wouldn't well, they be able to get out of whatever torture you're going to bestow upon them? Exactly. If they could. Exactly. So let's talk about the use of the witchcraft law and the last witch jailed in the United Kingdom. How long ago do you think that was? Uh, a hundred years ago. Well, almost. Okay, almost because I think we're in that that period of time. So it was in the forties, which we we're only twenty years away. It was right around the time of World War II, which also plays a role in the story. And we're talking about Helen Duncan. Helen Duncan was a Scottish woman, a medium, and she became known as the last person jailed in the United Kingdom for being a witch. So Helen was born in Calendar, Scotland in 1897. As an adult, she had traveled all throughout Britain holding regular seances, which were 
clearly making money for her and in more of a sometimes in a theater setting or in a private salon setting. And in these events, she would allegedly manifest or produce the likenesses of the deceased people that she was talking to by emitting ectoplasm, a cloudy cloth or smoke or liquid type of spiritual essence or matter from her mouth. Oh, so it wasn't green stuff like what's his name in uh, Ghostbusters? (laughs) No, 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 not like Slimer. Slimer. Um, But these ectoplasm forms would then supposedly interact with their relatives in the audience. So there are very, very famous spiritualist photos that you can go on the internet if you Google her. There are some very famous photos of her emitting ectoplasm. It's really, I mean, when you think that it's almost 100 years old, the idea that someone was messing with photography and messing with special effects in a very small, very close, close environment, that's kind of amazing in itself. But in all of the psychic research that's been legitimately tried over the past, you know, 50 years, this whole term of ectoplasm is completely gone. Nobody talks about that anymore, Mm -hmm. where it was really a big thing before. And for another really great movie representation, there's a great one, a British movie from about 10 years ago called The Awakening, about a woman in Edwardian London who was Edwardian. She thinks she's pre-World War II. Yeah. And she's an investigator. And she goes and she debunks all of these spiritualists. Oh, because cool. a lot of the spiritual movement at that time happened after World War One and World War II because so many people died during these wars. Mm-hmm. The same thing here in the U.S. after the Civil War. The mm-hmm. spiritualist movement took off because everyone was just grieving and wanting to connect with all their family members they had lost. All of their family members they had lost as a result of the war. So back to Helen and her vomiting up ectoplasm. (laughs) Look, while the spiritual movement at the time was regarded as relatively harmless as far as the government was concerned, many audience members, much as today, were really duped by clairvoyants and mediums, people who preyed on their grief, and they made a lot of cash Mm. from these endeavors. And there would be a lot of things that they would do if anybody's ever been through the Haunted Mansion or even at a county fair when you go through a quote-unquote dark ride. The idea is that you're in a room where everything in the background is painted pitch black, Mm. matte black, so that someone in a similar like black from head to toe is basically invisible and they can move around and they can manipulate the environment in order to create this sort of supernatural presence or things floating, things moving around, being touched in the middle of a seance, that sort of thing. During World War II, Helen started getting a lot of attention after she declared in 1941 that she had psychically connected to the spirit of a deceased sailor from the HMS Barham. She alleged that the sailor told her the ship was sunk in the Mediterranean. So the problem here is that the British government had not released the fact that that ship actually did sink in the Mediterranean until many months later, and they were making huge efforts to cover it up because Mm -hmm. it would have been a, a huge morale problem that hundreds of soldiers had died after the ship had been bombed or been uh, the victim of a German U-boat attack. Mm. So in January of 1944, officers of the Royal Navy crashed a seance in her hometown of Portsmouth and attempted to stop the ectoplasm. Supposedly, they were not able to stop her emitting the ectoplasm from her mouth, which that's, you know, 90 years ago. 
eight or 85 years ago. We're really never going to know what went on there, but that's a fascinating sort of fact there. Mm-hmm. Fact-ish or factoid. She was arrested and she was taken into custody even while being known as a con artist because the military did not want to take the chance that Helen might be able to access some real information through paranormal abilities and then blab about these highly secret, very important dates, which were the upcoming D-Day landing at Normandy. Oh, interesting. They were not going to take any chance at all that that was going to happen. Of course, today you can't hold without probable cause unless it's a federal, like a like a terrorism charge. So they were trying to pull any kind of thing, like what can we hold her for? So Helen was tried and convicted of the only law on the books that would work, witchcraft. Because it had not been taken off the books in 400 years. Oh, my gosh. She became the final person to be tried, prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced under the Witchcraft Act of 1735. It had been used previously about 100 years before, so about the mid-1800s. But then the trial lasted seven days, and she was sentenced to nine months in London's Holloway Prison. So this brought about a huge controversy after the war, and as a result of the case, the Witchcraft Acts were finally repealed in 1951. She was released from the prison in September of 1944, but it looks like the harassment that she faced really followed her up to her death. And I think following up, there was just so much of a public controversy and public anger against her for a number of reasons that the police followed up with another raid. And in November 1956, the police raided a private seance in Nottingham in an attempt, again, to prove fraud. Interestingly enough, they were not able to prove fraud again. So every time they keep catching her, they can't catch her doing anything. Now, that's not to be said. I mean, we look at close-up magicians. We look at people like we were talking about earlier who are mentalists. Like, if you're really good at it, the average Joe is not going to know how you did that. And I think it would be so hard to prove fraud in that situation because even if, you know, there's money exchanged for her services, if you can't figure out how she's doing it, You can't just say point and go fraud, fraud without some evidence. But also, you know, to what extent are people kind of paying for the entertainment piece of it? Right. And, you know, not feeling like they're being defrauded if they're getting the entertainment they want. Right. Or if they're getting something from it. I mean, I I mean, let me finish just one. The sad thing is that she died about five weeks later after Mm -hmm. that last raid. And she will always in UK history be remembered as the last witch. There was a bronze bust of Helen that was presented to the town of Calendar. And unfortunately, it became controversial in itself because there are very strong religious views that objected to its public display. So now it's on display at the Sterling Smith Art Gallery and Museum. Isn't that interesting? That For one thing, the idea of having a bust was to make the effort to say, hey, we fucked up. Yes. And we should and... have respected this person. Even if they're a con artist, you know, we need to be more careful about taking away people's rights when there yeah. was no probable cause there. And But anyway, even in her afterlife, she is still seen as a controversial figure. Now, a fun fact about this is that one of my favorite Disney musicals is Bedknobs and Broomsticks, mm-hmm. which is based on the idea that a witch helped in the fight against the Nazis. And yeah. even beyond that, in occult circles, Gerald Gardner, who was a major player in sort of the supposed rise of formal high magic in England at the time, which there's a lot of controversy about that he just made a bunch of stuff up. But Mm -hmm. 
he and his coven of other elderly people were out in the woods around the time of these attempts at invasions of Britain by the Nazis. And they were supposedly raising a cone of power over the UK to protect them. And here's the weird thing. They all died shortly after. So there was a lot of controversy in the pagan community about, oh, did they burn themselves out that doing magic takes your life force? When probably it was because it was a bunch of old people out in the middle of the moor at night with wind and rain with <laughs> yeah. no clothes on, you know, it so could, there you go. could be that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, you talk about this, the core of it being a con and we've talked a lot about cons and con games. And even our last episode, speaking about MLMs, you know, what makes somebody susceptible right. to something like that and the tactics that are used, but it really comes down to the fact that as a whole, we are trusting just human nature is to see the good in others. And we really cherish that, that belief and that stance because we think that we should be able to trust others. And that's why cons can be actually quite successful if the confidence man or confidence woman is talented. And they are successful because when you get to true con artists, you know, like we've talked about the dark triad and the Machiavellianism and psychopathy and narcissism that's weaved in there. When you get someone that is that like perfect blend of that, they're really good at what they do, but they're good at that because there's not many of them in the world. If there were, we would kind of smell the bullshit more often and know when to pick it up because it would be just all too common. But- you know, I, I was going to tell you, I f- loved this show back in the 2000s that was on sci-fi for a guy named John Edwards. And he was like an East Coast guy. Yes. And he was in this like really amazing kind of studio setting with these, you know, fabric panels and people sitting in sort of an amphitheater, a small amphitheater uh-huh. around him. And he was just, to watch the show was unbelievable, the connections he would make to people. and then names dates places i mean it was just amazing and then years later i went to see the upright citizens brigade which is an improv comedy group that's been around forever a lot of people have come from ucb including people like amy poehler yeah and uh, tina fey but they were doing a show up at the tamarind theater in hollywood and they had their skits that were prepared they had a lot of improv stuff And then they had this really fascinating thing where they would have like a guest, someone that they brought in that was like a working actor that had been maybe associated with them before, have that person on the spot tell a story, and then they would do improv based on the story. It was really Uh a great way to kind of keep everybody creative. So I was there the night that they invited Mindy Kaling up on stage. And no she was, way. Yeah, she was like getting really hot from uh, the office. You know, the office was like really taking off. Oh, yeah. And she told the most mind-blowing story to me. I mean, it's not really mind-blowing, but she I love this. She told it to you. To me, she told the yes, most to mind-blowing story to, to me. To me, personally. <laughs> but she talked about that she had worked as a PA on the John Edwards show. And she was like, it's all fake. What people see is 30 minutes. That 30 minutes is eight hours. Oh, my God. That is distilled down. Like nobody sees all the crap that he misses. All you're seeing is the the hits that he actually got right. And I thought that was very interesting because it really like, wow. I mean, I wish people knew that that's how this worked is that that cold reading technique. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the cons are so good. Just like perpetrators of violent crime, they're really great at picking out the perfect victim. Yes. For whatever their crime or their con is. Like reading body language and reading facial yes. expressions. I'm getting I'm getting an an Edward, an Edward. Well, of course you're going to see the person that kind of perks up, pops up yeah. in the back row like a prairie dog, like, "Go, oh, I got one. I got a mark." Yes. Yes. And that doesn't bode well when also as human beings, we're just terrible at telling if people are lying. I mean, we research consistently shows that we are no better than chance at telling if people are lying. We're really good at telling if people are being truthful. That's something we have a knack for. But if they're lying and they're good at it, we're not great at being able to decipher that, which goes back to, you know, our episodes on wrongfully accused parents and, right. you know, all all that spiel. But, you know, it trust is such a centerpiece of human society that if we had, if we defaulted to thinking that people were lying all the time, as we've said before, that would just destroy us. It would destroy our humanity. And so you have this perfect blend of people wanting to believe wherever they're at in their specific, you know, moment and experience of their life. And then a perpetrator comes in and takes advantage of that. So I'm so glad you bring that up because whenever I have the opportunity to jump in with sort of a clinical perspective that our listeners can take away, you're illustrating something so beautifully. And I like that second part, especially we're really good at telling when people are telling the truth. All right. That's great. We're not good at all about telling when people are lying. And I think that it's important for us as individuals who are consciously or unconsciously engaged in a social contract with the community that we live in, that we really try hard to come from a place where we don't assume malfeasance or maleficence from the people that are around us. Don't just immediately assume that everybody is an asshole that's trying to take advantage of you because that's paranoia and that's not healthy. It's not functional. But all of that being said, if you're in a relationship with someone, and I'm talking a coworker, a boss, a family member, uh, an intimate partner, and they habitually lie, that is a huge red flag. It is not going to change. Right. If they're adults over the age of like mid 30s, that is a fixed characteristic. And sometimes you can't get out. You can't not be someone's sister or mother or father or brother. You can't not be that relation, but you can change what your expectations are and how much you invest in what Mm -hmm. they're giving you. But that's something that comes up all the time in clinical work about when people are being dishonest. And you, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. I like that. When they show you who they are through their consistent, inappropriate behavior, believe that that's who they are. And I say this with great compassion in that they probably either got there based on their upbringing, maybe some brain wiring, which you and I have talked Mm -hmm. about, that is sort of part and integral to that dark triad. Maybe there are some things that are out of their control, but you have the option of putting up appropriate boundaries and walking away in a healthy fashion to protect yourself. Absolutely. So, I mean, we've covered a lot of stuff. I want, okay, we got uh, a ghost demon. We got a witch. (laughs) We got this, a lot. Yeah, we got a lot. This whole phenomenon has actually moved into legal status when it comes to real estate. Yeah. And one of the reasons it is, like, it's funny because there's, uh, like, you see the meme of the 
for sale sign on a house somewhere and it says for sale definitely not haunted and everybody's going like i want that house oh, because wait. if it says definitely not haunted then it definitely is haunted right so clearly there are some people that are like that's a selling point but for many people it absolutely is not and we have laws in the books certainly here in california i don't know how many places in the us it is as well but if someone has died in the home that you were buying within a certain amount of time I think it's within the last 20 years, your real estate agent is required by law to reveal that to you. So, and that was the big law case on that was Stambovsky versus Ackley. And that is actually in law textbooks that is studied mm -hmm. to this day because it is so important. It's also got a nickname called the Ghostbusters ruling. <laughs> and it states that, and I'm quoting, a house which the owner had previously advertised to the public as haunted by ghosts, legally was haunted for the purpose of an action for rescission bought by a subsequent purchaser of the house. So it's just saying that, like, you can't unring that bell. Once somebody right. has said that it's haunted, anybody who is selling that house is taking a risk on the person they're selling it to because they could... They could nullify the the purchase. This I mean, was, it wouldn't be an easy thing, but they could do it. This was a fascinating conversation that they had on the Los Feliz Murder Mansion podcast. Right, right. Because, you know, death after death after death happened there and it being, you know, not abandoned, but not lived in for so long. And, you know, they kind of started to parse apart this concept of, well, of course, people die in homes and... Like people die in hospitals all the time, but we don't refuse to go in there. Now, I know you're not living there, but it's this weird, even if you aren't superstitious or you don't believe in hauntings, that people just feel this creeped out sense if they know somebody died in a home and then they're going to make it theirs. It's like they, like you're saying, they can't like unring the past, even though who knows what kind of horrific things happen in homes, hotel rooms. You know, if you really want to think about it, it could kind of overwhelm you yeah. instead of, I don't know. Yeah, but. no, I mean, there's there's a great British series called Ghosts about a couple, a, a, like a young, really broke couple. And the young woman inherits uh, a huge estate because she's the last relative of this person that she barely even knew but they have to i can't remember if they have to hold on to it or they decide they're going to turn it into an airbnb so she gets to the property with her husband she trips and falls and hits her head and when she hits her head she can see all the ghosts that oh are stuck gosh. there and it's really funny it's like it's all done like a comedy so everybody thinks she's crazy but she's talking to all these ghosts from different eras and making deals with them like if you'll leave me like to this guy from world war ii if you leave me alone I'll leave the History Channel on for you 24 hours a day. <laughs> so you can just relive. <laughs> right. So you can death. watch all, this, all that stuff. <laughs> so I, we want to uh, wrap up with another, like, very complex and... Yes. Oh, this is so creepy. Humorous on one level, but, like, really frightening. I'm going to describe something that I, if I was the recipient of this, it would be terrifying for me. And we're talking about a case that has been covered in other podcasts but I think that from a psychological standpoint, this is fascinating. We're talking about the Watcher of Westfield. So in June of 2014, Derek and Maria Broadus moved into their dream home. It was a six-bedroom house in Westfield, New Jersey, 
where they wanted to raise their children. And look, it's easy to see why the house was so attractive when you hear the description posted on Zillow. I'm going to read right from Zillow. Period features including high ceilings, coffered ceilings, elegant foyers, built-in window seats, fireplaces, and more. The stunning master suite boasts a custom dressing room, closet, and a renovated bath. Two porches, a covered open front porch, and an enclosed side porch with stone fireplace add to the inviting appeal. An open staircase leads to the third floor with sitting at like three floors. Third floor with sitting area, two bedrooms, and renovated bath with skylight. A finished playroom is located in the basement. Okay, that sounds a little creepy. (laughs) You had me at window seats, though. Yeah, exactly. But like, well, me screened in port. It's like, okay, I'm going to be living there for the rest of my life. But in June of 2015, just a year later, Derek and Maria filed a civil complaint with the Union County Superior Court. Derek and Maria sued their home's previous owners for knowingly and willingly failing to disclose the home's history. They asserted that someone or something had been harassing them their family, and several previous owners. The entity, or whoever it was that was sending them written letters, called themselves The Watcher, an individual who claims a right of ownership and or possession of the house. Derek and Maria began receiving letters at their home a year prior in June of 14, so only really days after they got there. Mm -hmm. A person calling themselves The Watcher informed them that they were the latest in a series of watchers of the home And they insinuated very carefully that there was danger. So there were intimidating messages that were put into the letters and delivered to the home, beginning with an ominous introduction. Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. How did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call you with its force from within? My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s and my father in the 1960s. It is now my time. I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. I am pleased to know your names now and the name of the young blood you have brought to me. Will the young bloods play in the basement? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in the bedroom that I can plan better. Have they found out what is in the walls yet? In time they will. Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I'm in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I'm in one. Look out any of the many windows and see the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Welcome, my friends. Let the party begin. Can't. It's like so cheesy. It's so cheesy. But you know what? (laughs) If you were on the receiving end of like a formal letter, handwritten in ink, in oh, like totally. a scratchy calligraphy, which it was like it was it would have been fucking frightening. Yeah, I I know. But come on. I know it is like a little bit. <laughs> they over could the have top. penned something a little bit. Right, right, right. So while it was creepy and disturbing, the messages did not imply immediate threat of danger, which for me as someone who works in in risk management mm-hmm. or risk assessment, that's always right. a big deal. There was no contingency threats that would actually like constitute actual immediate action by the police or even enough to fill out a crime report other than just like sort of harassment, I guess. But Derek and Maria became so confirmed for their family's safety that they sued the sellers for $1.3 million, claiming that they had failed to disclose their knowledge of the watcher. Their attorney, Lee Levitt, stated in the complaint that the Broadduses had been consumed daily by stress, anxiety, and fear regarding what the watcher will do. 
And they said that they would never have bought the house had they known about the watcher because they would have been too concerned for their children's safety. So mm-hmm. when it comes to kids, I, yeah, I get of it. Course. But what's the real twist here? So not everybody is convinced that their motivations were really above board because records show that the Broadduses had 12 mortgages over the past decade. And so maybe there was more of a sort of a material incentive. They wanted to avoid bankruptcy. But the Broadduses did contact the previous owners prior to filing a complaint. And the owners revealed that they had, in fact, received one message prior to the sale indicating you have brought me new blood. But they never received anything similar in the 23 years that they had lived in the home. Hmm. So now, come on. Yeah, that's some planning right there. Like, yeah, look, we're going to get in over our heads. We got to get this money. We've got to lay a groundwork. So let's send one letter before we go in. So, I mean, is it a hoax um, perpetuated by a shady family with a history of debt? Is there a watcher? Is there not a watcher? Who knows? They were able to take those letters and they were able to pull some DNA samples. Now, I don't know, I was, as much as I researched in the cut and the other articles that we pulled from, the only DNA I can think of would be like licking the envelope to seal it. Yeah, you know, or like touch DNA from every postal worker who touched it. Oh, good point. You know? Yeah, yeah, they don't, because they don't, they don't really disclose what kind of DNA and where it was found, if it was inside the envelope or out. And, you know, <laughs> I cannot imagine, maybe they got this done privately, which almost speaks to them trying to, you know, hire their own experts. I can't think of a law enforcement agency that's like, oh yeah, let us take our resources and our money and spend it on DNA testing for this when we have a backlog of rape cases. That's do. a really great point. That is a really great point. Well, look, the DNA that they pulled was from a woman. So... You know, immediately people were thinking that it would that would immediately be a man or, you know, if it wasn't some sure. otherworldly entity that, you know, had access to nice stationery and wrote right. longhand. But they didn't match the DNA of the female, the previous female owner of the house or the current. So okay, didn't match them. But that, like you said, could have been somebody in the mail processing or anybody else that came in contact with it. So a more recent article from like 2017 in The Cut talked about all the other evidence that had come up in the years since. And it was some interesting stuff. There is a family in the neighborhood that was really described politely as odd. So there Mm -hmm. was kind of a weird family living there. And there was one guy in that weird family who was particularly weird. And everybody kind of described him as a Boo Radley type (laughs) from To Kill a Mockingbird. Like only comes out at night. And he was for a while a main suspect and was brought in for questioning. He was a widower. So the Broadus has turned to a lot of experts, including hiring a private investigator, as well as former FBI agent Robert Linehan and a friend of the family, (laughs) actually a friend of their family because they went to school together in undergrad, Candace DeLong, who is, as we all know, who Clary Starling was based on. Oh, I thought you were saying a friend of our family. (laughs) You're like, no, a friend of of their family. (laughs) I would love, I would love Candace DeLong (laughs) to be a friend of my family. She would have to put a restraining order on me because I'd be calling her all the time. Like, tell me stories, tell me stories. (laughs) Anyway, Linehan's scrutiny of the letters went pretty deep. And his view of them was that there were writing points and things that they could pull out for information that indicated it was an older writer who used sort of archaic salutations that would include like the day's weather, warm and humid, you know, Mm -hmm. like 
who does that anymore? I mean, I actually even really wasn't aware of that as being a, a style point. I mean, it sounds like something from a century ago, really. Yeah, true. And the sentence had double spaces between them. And the narrative had this like florid literary flair that suggested someone who read a lot. So, mm-hmm. and I don't know if Linehan actually is trained to do sort of that forensic work with right. writing style, but you know, I think that it's very interesting. And he said that the surprising lack of profanity given the level of anger would have indicated a less macho writer hmm. that I'm going to pull back from any kind of comment on that, because I think that that sounds like it's, that's a kind of a culture bound statement or a heteronormative well, statement to make. Yeah. Do you have another perspective on it? No, not a different perspective. Just that I know that when I've talked to Jim Fitzgerald, who's a forensic linguist, he is yeah. able to look at a writing and basically say, does this have more of a male or a female tone to it? So, you okay, know, that's, so that's, that's, that's what that's kind of making me okay. think is that he's not saying it's not a man, but a less macho man or a less, yeah, like a man that would, yeah, a man that maybe traditionally would express anger with profanity. This person isn't doing that. Right. So, The investigation ramped up. There were lots of interviews on neighbors. And what happened, interestingly enough, was that a lot of the neighbors were really becoming suspects. And one of the things that was, I thought, was really sad and sort of looping it back around to the Salem witch trials and what goes on in other countries with these allegations of people being the other is there was an elderly couple and someone noted, do you ever notice that both of their chairs outside are pointed towards the house? They're always watching the house. Oh God! It's like, well, where do you point your chairs? Are you going to put your chairs facing your back wall? It right. just seems so arbitrary. Wow. Um, well, so- it sounds like they invested money if they're hiring private investigators and if you're already in debt and it's all a dupe for that i don't know unless it was just let's keep this going it could be or maybe they were trying to gin something up like the amityville horror issue like let's let's gin something up enough that we can get ed and lorraine warren out here to Mm. do an investigation and then make a movie series on it complete conjecture allegedly i'm not saying i'm just i wouldn't put it past some people I don't know about them. I don't know them, but I could totally see that happening. (laughs) But once again, I think the the awakening is a really great example of something like this, where there is a supernatural element to the story that's fascinating, but it's also by someone who the person who experiences it is a professional debunker. And there are great scenes of how she goes into this really creepy seance and she just like pulls the whole thing apart. That's really wonderful. When I was thinking of media depictions, I mean, we covered so much and kind of went in all sorts of different directions, but I was just kind of looking at crimes perpetrated by the supernatural and I had to just bring up good old Blair Witch Project. Yeah. I mean, I I was thinking back to when I first saw it in theaters and it was with a ex-boyfriend and we were down in Orange County and went and saw this, you know, right when it came out, if not the weekend it came out and just loved how it was filmed. It was so real and filmed that way, which, you know, all of that sort of POV footage makes me nauseous as hell. So I think I kind of had that going into it where I was just not as enthralled by every single moment, but still really caught up in it. And, you know, there's 
kidnap and kind of torture and murder of these three individuals in the movie by this witch or by this paranormal entity in the woods. And it was so funny because my boyfriend completely thought it was real. He was so freaked out when we came out of there and was like, what the fuck was that? And I was like, dude, (laughs) it was a movie. It was filmed to look real, but it's not real. That's why he is my (laughs) ex-boyfriend. We, yeah. Yeah, that's not something your husband would, your current husband. Um, would, no. no. But yeah, I thought Blair Witch was amazing. And I, it was too. I have not seen it in years. I remember getting a screener of it when I was working and casting at NBC. And I sat and watched it one afternoon in my office with Michelle Trachtenberg, who went on to be in Buffy and a bunch of other projects oh, cool. when she was like a, a teenage actress. And I don't remember why oh, her sister was working with us. So mm-hmm. Michelle and I were sitting there glued to my television, just like, I know it's not real, but it's so freaky. I and the, know. The thing that I loved also is like, I'm on a couple of Facebook groups that are like for fans of horror movies and people from, you know, more recent generations just wail on that film. They wail on it yes. like it's so crappy. It's all, how could anybody and everybody jumps in and very kindly redirects them. Like, you don't have to you don't understand. This was the first time mm-hmm. anybody had really done a found footage totally. point of view thing that was like this. It had been done in some foreign films, but it hadn't been done like this with these level of actors. Heather, Heather, whatever her name was, was oh, really, so good. really good. She left the industry completely. She was like so sick of Hollywood. Really loved her. But yeah, loved there are her. some great movies out there. And there's also like a, a really wonderful comedy drama called Psych, where a mentalist oh, works Psych with so a much. detective and he pretends to be a psychic. And they talk about a lot of the tricks of the trade. I think that's really good. Oh, one of my favorite series ever. So. Yeah. Love it. You know, and then I guess, have you, so you... When we in the time that we have known each other, you've always been a complete skeptic. I mean, I mean, you're loosening up a little bit. Do you feel like you've ever had any kind of experience? Yeah, I I can um, say that I have that I can't explain. The one I think I told, I might have told this when we did our crossover with Tammy and Bryce like several years ago. We did our Exorcist one, but. It was when I was babysitting for a dispatcher at the police department I worked for. I was a police cadet at the time. I was going to college. And so she worked the overnight shift. And so I would babysit. She was a single mom. She had like an eight-year-old son. And I would get off work. I was also working at Starbucks. I would get off work, go to her place and just stay overnight while she worked the shift. And what I would do is I would sleep in a pull-out couch in the living room. And there was a back door where when she was done in the morning, she would come in through that back door and go to her room, go to bed. I would wake up and leave, you know, essentially whenever that was. Well, one night I heard her come in, but then she really came home. Like I heard her come in a second time, if you will. And the next morning I called her after I left and I was like, Hey, did you come in at three or did you come in at six? She was like, no, I came home at six, but I fully heard like the door open. Someone walked past the couch and into the bedroom. And then eventually she had gotten a guest room put together for me. And I woke up one morning from there and all of her son's little action figures were lined up perfectly in a row 
along the side of the bed where I would basically get out and put my feet down. And he completely had been asleep all night. He had no idea. was like, hey, why are my toys in your room? <laughs> like didn't have any uh, knowledge of it. And she told me, she's like, oh yeah, there's something here. Someone was actually trying to break into my house one night and something turned on a light and scared that person away. And the police department came out and investigated and found markings at her window that someone was trying to break in. Holy crap. But she said that the ghost turned the light on and scared the bad guy away. So that's fascinating. I, I have had several experiences and we talked about those several mm-hmm. of them on the show. One of them was when I was working at state prison and I was working in a, di- a division or a department where the entire yard was people who were pretty significantly mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And I was interviewing an older gentleman, completely, completely psychotic. I mean, he was very polite and willing to, you know, cooperate and engage. But he was, I, I can't for reasons of like confidentiality, I won't describe what he looked like, but he had a quite a bizarre look by choice. And while I was interviewing him, doing the psyche eval, he looked at me, made eye contact, and he'd been very eye contact avoidant. He was very uncomfortable with eye contact. Then he looked at me and he looked up over my left shoulder and he said, your dad's here. He's standing oh. behind you. And then he went on and described my dad to a T, including the clothing he always wore, details about the hat he wore. Wow. It was, it was so crazy because especially as a professional, it's like, well, I'm not going to approaching this from a clinical standpoint if this person is delusional it would be clinically incorrect and um not helpful to the treatment to go into their delusion right you remain neutral about it but like it was very interesting because i would love to have gotten more information and who knows maybe he was cold reading me and just Mm -hmm. seeing what i was responding to but i worked with this guy for close to a year and he was very very ill did he ever disclose to you previous to that that he was a medium or no. sensitive? No. no, that was like the first day. That was like the uh, first day we met. Huh. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I was having a talk with one of the older employees, a psychologist who had been working in prisons for years. And he said, you'll see things here that are very weird. You know, that yeah. there's just an energy about prisons that just gets locked and looped around. He goes, I don't, I don't know anything about anything. I just know there's some weird shit out here. Yeah, I bet. I bet. It's one of those places that has so many layers of right. energy. Yeah. And negative, of course. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to, there's a new paranormal activity movie out, I think in two weeks and always around Halloween is when they release. And my sister and I pre COVID would always go see them on opening night at midnight. And I just, I love like Halloween Horror Nights. I love that jump scare type movie. So those were also really done well. Yeah. The first couple were great. And they made a killing off those because the budgets were so low. No shit. Yeah. For your viewing pleasure for Halloween, I highly recommend Midnight Mass on Mm -hmm. Netflix. It's really great. If you have Turner Classic Movies, I'm just always... I love watching the old stuff. They have Eyes Without a Face, which is incredibly creepy that's playing right now. They have The Seventh Victim, which is another sort of psychological horror movie that moves very slow. But it's it's fascinating for what it covers at the time in the 40s. It's like a noir horror film. Nice. So anyway, have a great Halloween. We'll see people in a few weeks. 
please join us. Are we doing Get Vocal this week? I think we're doing Get Vocal. We are. Yes. We might actually have a special guest. Somebody's going to be staying at my house that weekend. So maybe she will pop in. Is it the ghost that arranged the toys (laughs) at your bed? That's probably it. No, it's, it's a ghost from the East Coast. That's all I'll say. Space ghost. Okay. (laughs) All right. Everyone, we will catch you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.